This week's podcast is kindly supported by NewZest. NewZest are an amazing company that have been working with us over the last few months around protein products. So today in the studio, we have the amazing Corey, and you're going to be talking to us about how you use the NewZest product. How's it going, Corey? How's it going, Robbie? I am so glad to be here, and things are going pretty well. I can't complain. I'm in uh, Florida, so the weather is perfect. I'm right next to Disney World, so I mean, I can't go wrong. Amazing. Well, you're a podcast pro uh, as well. I've been doing lots of episodes and having lots of guests, and you know, you you know how it goes. Love to hear a bit about who you are and what you do. I am a husband and a father. I've been that for 15 years, and my wife and I have been married for 15 years. We have three awesome kids. Two have been vegan since birth. I am probably, I'd say, 99% whole food, plant based on a plant based diet. My kids incorporate a little bit of the vegan cheeses here and there with the diet products and things like that. That's a little bit about me and, and our Lean Green family. Of course, I run this little blog and podcast called Lean Green Dad, and, and we love it. Tell us a little bit how you integrate a product like New Zest into your daily lives. We're all busy. I think we're all as busy as we decide to make ourselves. Uh, for me, I happen to have these three kids and you really have to be super, super selfless. And for me, getting our kids convenient snacks that we trust and really just feel good about is, is the name of the game. So my daughter's 13 and she is a competitive dancer. She dances seven days a week, absolutely intense, three, four, sometimes eight hours a day on the weekends, she will be dancing. And for someone like her who is on a vegan diet, a lot of people do wonder, hey, where do you get your protein? And so for us, anytime that we can add some extra protein, if she's going above and beyond, is very, very good, especially if it's plant-based protein. I mean, it has to be for us and our family. We've kind of found that balance between taste, like delicious taste, and efficacy, where it's super effective. She's recovering fast, she's feeling good, and she also loves the taste. So it's almost like she's cheating, you know, when she has a vanilla milkshake or a vanilla protein powder shake, or she has a, a chocolate bar. Like favorite is like the chocolate peanut butter. It's it's crazy. It's like, I don't know, back in the day when you're a kid and you try a candy bar or something, it's unreal. Corey, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was a pleasure to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, and where can people find you? You can find us over at Lean Green Dad or leangreendad.com. So if you love the idea of NewZest, please go and grab yourself 20% off your first purchase by visiting newzest.us forward slash PBN20. You can also use the discount code PBN20 at checkout and let us know what you think in the comments. There's no need to put waste coffee into landfill, but that's virtually where it ends up. If you're putting large amounts of coffee into landfill, landfill where you're stacking, you know, that traditional large-scale landfill, because it gets left there, it basically excretes loads of methane. It's a really bad one to put in. But from a biological manufacturing perspective, it takes fungi. Oyster mushrooms can basically do a one-to-one. -one. So if you have a ton of coffee, virtually you can create a ton of mushrooms out of it. Welcome back to the PBN Podcast. In today's episode, I'm excited to sit down with Dr. Vincent Walsh, a sustainable agricultural academic and founder of the ecological food company Herbalism. Coming from a working class background, Vincent's academic journey led him to earn a PhD, despite struggling with severe dyslexia. His research focuses on forming resilient methodologies to create integrated alternative food production and urban distribution systems. Through an innovative interdisciplinary approach, he aims to create models of food production that are increasingly sustainable and resilient against any climate or economic disruptions. Vincent has over 10 years of experience as a senior design consultant developing food projects that have launched several ventures that promote plant-based living and improve the food chain from production to distribution. 
He founded Herbalism with the aim to provide more circular and regenerative food products for the UK market. As part of his first commercial project, he partnered with sports and entertainment caterer Levi UK, who do the catering for events venues like Wimbledon, Twickenham, the O2 Arena, Wembley and Chelsea FC. After the products he developed were a huge hit at COP26 in Glasgow, the partnership between Levi and Herbalism is now extending. Vincent is an exciting thought leader in the field and is regularly featured in New Food magazine. He speaks regularly at major food sustainability conferences both in the UK and internationally. He also currently is developing a truly circular approach to growing food, cultivation, production and distribution while also ensuring the increased forestation and soil-based carbon capture. Today, Vincent continues to work with international brands, leading developers, startups and innovating organizations across multiple industries and sectors. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Vincent Welsh and learn more about his incredible journey with herbalism and the innovative practices he is pioneering in the food production sector. I am your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the Plant based news podcast as always don't forget to comment like and share and if you like this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts it really helps get the message out there let's get to the episode thank you so much for joining us on the podcast dr v what a great pleasure to sit down and hear your story oh no looking forward to it so before we get started and learn about all the amazing things you've been doing with your life right now uh let's go back in time and tell us your plant-based or vegan story how did you discover this way of eating this lifestyle where did it all begin Actually, for me, it probably all began in Africa. Yeah, I was coming out of uh, just doing a moving image design. So my background's always been in design. And then after kind of studying moving image design, working in Soho for a little while in London, decided actually this is not what I want to be doing. And I ended up spending some time in Africa, uh, which allowed me to work with organisations like the World Agro Forest Research Trust, uh, which is a basically a, a farming organisation looking at how you develop more ecological, efficient farming systems. And really, that that was the kind of the big change for me. And, you know, it's something I just absolutely loved uh, from from day one. And interestingly, you know, there's a real design methodology with agroforestry. Industrial agriculture has major environmental drawbacks. 26% of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. Its crop monoculture suck out all the nutrients out of the soil and lastly agriculture takes up enormous amounts of land. So how are some random trees supposed to help with all that? It's called agroforestry. The system combines conventional farming of crops and animals with different types of trees. But what is agroforestry? Agroforestry is very simple. It means using agricultural techniques with forestry. So it means basically farms with trees on it. So it's as simple as that. But actually, you know, it goes deeper than that. It's, it's about how you, you know, create, design and emerge complex ecosystems that not just produce food, but produce food, raise the biodiversity of the site, put carbon in the soil. So yeah, that would have been what, 15, around 15 years ago. And then from there, yeah, sometime in Ethiopia, Nigeria, then over to Croatia for a couple of years and then over to Spain, doing all the same kind of work, uh, building farming, landscapes, etc. And it was really this what I then kind of, you know, started to understand about more plant-based ecological foods 
But also, you know, learning the other side of it more importantly, like what is monoculture? You know, what is heavy industrial agriculture? And I think when you start understanding one end of it, you will also start to understand the other. And I think we all know we're in a situation where we, you know, we need to protect the biosphere in a much more uh, ecological manner. So how did you get into the sort of way of living in the sense that, you know, farming and agriculture and plants, have you always been like that? Did you have green fingers as a child, always digging in the ground or...? No, no, not not at all. Completely opposite. You know, I was grew up in uh, in Manchester with with, with my mother. Uh, my mother's Irish, massive family. But I wouldn't say we ate the most ecological foods. You know, were, were we ever starving? No. You know what Irish families are like. You know, always you know big big meals, usually meat and two veg and all that kind of stuff. So no, I did I didn't have green fingers at all. It was like I said, it was kind of when I got into university and started looking at design. And you know, I really liked the you know the, the design discipline. And it was kind of, you know, spending three years or four years doing that and a couple of years in Soho, it kind of took took me to there. So, you know, no, you know, I didn't have green fingers when I was younger. Never thought, you know, I'd be doing anything like I am now. But no, we all we all change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing when you when you sort of get involved in something that you really care about, it does often feel like your whole life completely changes and you just have the sense of purpose. So tell us a little bit about your sort of, you know, your professional background. Obviously, you know, we called we called you Dr. V at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about what that actually means. You're a doctor of what? Right, okay, so yeah, really mixed bag, actually. So like I said, I, my undergrad was in moving and redesign. So a lot, of, uh, you know, on computers using Cinema 4D, After Effects, all that kind of stuff. But then I ended up then doing a master's in architecture and urbanism, but did nothing to do with architecture and urbanism. Ended up just doing some more stuff on agroforestry, you know, looking at urban forest systems. And more to the point, the lack of urban forest systems and why landscape architects tend to design in a really simplistic way. You know, we, we, you, can, you can only look, you just only have to look at an urban environment and, you know, the tree infrastructure that we have are, are kind of reductionary. Trees are usually singular things and, and, and so on. So that's what I kind of did uh, um, my master's. And then that took me to my PhD. My PhD was very different. It was where I took a building over in that I raised about, £800,000 to do my PhD for a number of organisations and I took that money and then proceeded to take a building over and start developing a range of ecological systems in that building and also created a little little store, as little like a whole food store. So I was interested in how you build complex ecosystems in urban environments and why, why did we end up with developing a store i'll just tell you very quickly so you know if you have a if you have a an ecological store you know like a whole food store you know what that gives you is green and brown waste waste food brown waste is like cardboard so in a way it gives you nitrogen and carbon that's quite interesting in, in, in itself and then what we did is we took that waste uh, we sent it to a vermiculture system a vermiculture system is a large uh, worm system so we had two three four million worms in, in in this worm system, in this big pod. Interestingly, worms also give you output. So if you feed them, they, create, they give you worms. Worms uh, are self-regulating. 
If you keep feeding worms, that they will po keep populating. And if you stop feeding them, they will reduce their, their population. Uh, maybe we could take something away from that humans. And that's quite, I, I just found it interesting that wor worms do do that. But also, so they create worms. They also create worm cast, which is worm poo. But worms are, you know, they're, they're, they're ancient in the biosphere. You know, complex ecosystems have evolved with, with, with worms. Not as old as fungi. Uh, fungi are way older uh, than worms. But worms are, you know, they are biological engineers. So if you feed them, you know, if you feed worms, they, they create more worms. They also give you worm cast, which is the worm poo, uh, which is key for fertility for soil. But they also give you a tea as well. They also give you a liquid so you can squeeze the poo. <laughs> and you, and <laughs> it's not very nice to think about. But then it's in, interesting, though, because we had a we did, ended up developing a forest as part of my PhD. And we needed something to stop aphids getting onto the, the apple trees and the fruit trees and so on. And interestingly, worm tea does that. It gives you three three things. So and then from from that also we had then an aquaponic system where you could feed worms to the fish, and then the fish then give you nitrates uh, and nitrites. Uh, we had about eight hundred fish uh, in the in this system, and then the, by feeding the the fish worms and other fish food, uh, what they give you is their poo, and their poo is ideal for aquaponics. Basically, aquaponics is having fish and growing plants so in on the, the fish tanks eight of them 14,000 litres of water uh, 800 fish we then pump all the, the fish waste to the top of the roof uh, and then we grew about 3,000 plants so what we started to develop in this PhD was how do you develop urban ecosystems based on all the stuff that we know that nature does really well. And this really gave me the grounding to understand, you know, how, how you start to build complex ecosystems, which inevitably took me on to, to the work I, I do now with food companies as, as a freelancer around more regenerative circular infrastructure, as well as, you know, running herbalism. Mm. I love the idea of that. Um, we often hear people talking about something called biomimicry, about how we should mimic the way nature works, because obviously nature has, on this planet has had billions of years of uh, practice to produce a beautiful equilibrium. And of course, along came Homo sapiens sapiens and smashed through everything and have completely upset you know the beautiful balance that has that is mother nature that is earth life's been on earth for 3.8 billion years and in that time life has learned what works and and what's appropriate here and what lasts here and the idea is that um perhaps we should be looking at these mentors at these biological elders they have figured out how to create a sustainable world. So rather than inventing it from scratch, um, why don't we take our, our cues from them? It's, these are Earth-savvy adaptations. They're the consummate life. These, these organisms are the consummate engineers. They're the consummate chemists and technologists. They've learned how to do it in context. So that's the core idea behind biomimicry, um, is that the, the best ideas um, might not be ours. It might already have been invented.
Would you call yourself a scientist? Would you, you are a scientist, right? Didn't have the greatest time at school, uh, so I did definitely didn't come from that you know traditional science science way into academia. You know what I am is I, I'm very practical, and that's even though with my BA, my MA, my PhD, it was all about you know getting out of the university and doing and building stuff. So yes, I, you can say I'm an academic. I am a scientist, but I'm very much what I would call an action led researcher, a person who doesn't tend to sit in a university and write about how things should be. I tend to be out in the world learning about, you know, how we develop stuff and, you know, going through that process of learning knowledge through getting things right, through getting things wrong sometimes and you know having yeah and and learning in in learning through process uh, learning through collaboration bringing people together you know raising capital to make make things happen that's kind of where I've always always been but you're right that equilibrium with life you know we've got 3.8 billion years of knowledge of R&D 3.4 billion years ago it was when photosynthesis started and this this is really when our earth system started to become fully circular and through circular infrastructure i.e you know the sun and water created photosynthesis photosynthesis and created basic life which turned into them multicellular life etc so right back you know 3.4 billion years ago you know our our life earth system started to become circular and i find that really interesting because i think when you look at supply chains for example in food the more innovation you have right at the beginning of the supply chain For example, in my case, right at the beginning of the farm, the more innovation you can have all the way through your supply chain. And I think the the biosphere in its inherent knowledge kind of knew that by developing circular infrastructure 3.4 billion years ago, it was meant it could develop that kind of complex ecosystem that we, we see now. Yeah, it's such a fascinating subject, you know, Earth and humanity. There is so much potential for us as a species to live in harmony with nature. You know, I'd love to see cities where the buildings are covered with living walls and, you know, you see these terribly ugly office blocks with flat roofs and you think, why are there not, you know, green um, spaces on, on top of these buildings? You know, what can kind of city planners and what can people working in urban spaces be doing? Firstly, obviously on an individual level, but on a sort of bigger policy level, what should we be doing to make our cities and our communities greener and cleaner? From your perspective, yeah. Well, I, I think first it's 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 more about imagination than knowledge. I think we just said, look, we've got three point eight billion years of knowledge of biosphere of R and D. So I, I think it's less about knowledge and more about now imagination. I think we know how to develop complex ecosystems. We know that there's a whole range of new technologies, mushroom being one of them, of new materials. You know, uh, more biological. What I would call more more metabolic materials you know the earth system has never created waste it simply can't because it's highly designed uh, to make sure it can it can never create a foreign material and i think our challenge now and into the future is to start like you said to start mimicking that you know to start mimicking them processes in everything that we do you know the the built environment is something we have to you know completely rethink you know a huge amount of damage is done by construction and the materials that w- that we use within the built environment 
And I think we are in, in that very early stages of completely rethinking our urban landscape. And I, I just find that you know, highly exciting. One of the big challenges is to start you know, um, re, reteaching architects and landscape architects about biological systems. You know, I went through, lands, you know, I did a landscape architecture, um, you know, as my MA. Um, and I, was, I don't think I ever heard the term biosphere or closed ecological life support systems or anything like that. It was only later on uh, through my own curiosity of understanding how the earth system works in the biosphere that I started to come across these terms. Uh, and I think that's a major mistake because land, landscape architects and architects as a whole, these are the city developers, you know, and um, th- they really should be driving the narrative of a more biologically rich urban environment. But if they don't know that, you know, they're not getting taught that from basically from the first year in, in school, in architectural school, I, I think that's a major problem. So just touching uh, now on your platform and your company and your products that you've created, Herbalism, um, I'd love to learn more about where the idea came from. I'm incredibly inspired by by all these different things that you've done, all the incredible academic achievements you've achieved. I have no idea where you find the time to do all of this. You also seem incredibly young, so I, I don't know where you found that you also don't find the time to do all those things as well. But tell us more about sort of herbalism and where the idea came from and what's your mission behind it? Well, it's, it's been a long path, to be honest. So to, uh, let's take t- to uh, nearly four years ago now, I, I decided that actually the, 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 I thought there wasn't really a really good ecological restaurant on in, in the UK. And I thought, you know, there was some good sustainable restaurants doing a little bit. I, but I just didn't think there was anybody really pushing uh, what does a really sustainable ecological restaurant look like in the 21st century so that was initially the idea we were supposed to be opening a restaurant so yeah the idea started about two years uh, four years ago it took about a year and a half to, to raise capital uh, look at kind of getting a getting a, a an ideal place to launch the restaurant in uh, in Manchester which was going to be on Oxford Road with a great development company uh, called Bruntwood but unfortunately Covid hit and you know uh, I'm a couple of my investors ended up kind of uh, pulling out of that uh, and I have to completely re- rethink uh, even now you know I, I you know I think still restaurants are a very tricky business uh, without Covid but I, I, th- I felt like I had a really good brand I thought I, f- I had a really good idea and I, I, I just couldn't walk away from it and then it was like okay maybe we start just creating products and uh, and and looking you know at opportunities uh, to to work maybe with food service or going direct to retail so we spent a lot of time kind of is it food service is it retail i think the food service probably was a little bit easier i think the the market's pretty it's saturated with plant-based products in in supermarkets and so on um, and I thought actually food service would be a, a better opportunity but also for me also a bit of a more exciting opportunity so we decided to kind of look at food service and then ended up speaking to a really good chef uh, James Buckley who works for a, a, a food service company and we just started to have a general conversation about you know what could a product range look like for herbalism? We started backing, uh, knocking some ideas between us, and then we we came up up with a range. So at the moment we've got kind of six products in our range. So we've got like a chorizo mushroom sausage. Uh, we've got a her burgers, got a, a mushroom burger, a veggie and mushroom sausage. So all our products are based on mushrooms, and there's a real reason for that, uh, Robbie. 
Because firstly, I'm not interested in mycoproteins. I think there's many people doing it, and I'll just leave it as that. You know, in the UK, we have approximately 1,500 different edible mushrooms, I think it is. We've got enough mushrooms to create a whole range of different product ranges within the UK without looking at heavy processing, you know, like microproteins and and, and so on. So I wanted to try to create a a product range which was uh, natural. Uh, Then we started to work with a manufacturer, see what that manufacturing process looked like. This was all new for me. I had no idea how to do this. You know, I just kind of come out of the restaurant game. I had to rethink it. So we started talking to a few manufacturers and then we we ended up, yeah, producing the product range. In the last three months, we've just started doing a deal with uh, Levy, uh, Levy UK, which is a food service company who runs lots of uh, sports stadiums. So they do all the food for sports stadiums, everything from the VIP right down to the street food. And we started to collaborate with them and we'll be getting our first products in into that supply chain um, over the next three months. Which That's so you know, exciting. What, what are some of the clubs, so that football or sports clubs that we may have heard of? Chelsea, Wimbledon. Hopefully Tottenham O2. So like I said, they run about 37 stadiums. So yeah, they run around 30, I think it's 36, 37 stadiums. Also, we we did cop with them. I'm interested to hear more about that because obviously that's a huge step forward for you, you as a brand being involved in something so established. Could you share a little bit about the experience of developing stuff for COP, the COP menu, and uh, what did you achieve from this collaboration? Yeah, so, you know, it all started with this conversation with James. James is a great chef from a cuisine perspective, but also we both have this understanding of what circular food infrastructure is. And we started to think about, you know, this is where the mushrooms come into it. We started to think, okay, is there ways, not right now, is there ways, how do we develop a plant-based brand? But do we want to stay a plant-based brand? No, we want to become a circular food brand. We want to become a regenerative food brand. I think this is where we, we can start separating ourselves from other people in the market. And to be able to do that, we had to really think about what I was saying before about the biosphere and, and also having innovation right at the beginning of your conversations and at the beginning of your supply chain. Because if you do that, you think about where you want to end up. Uh, it really changes about how you think about the way you start so the, the conversations was okay how do we create a product range where which we're, we're fairly confident and happy with now but also how do we create an innovation platform uh, going forward to differentiate ourselves from everybody else in the market and mushrooms is a is a is a key key one why is mushrooms a key one because firstly you can look at different waste streams so you can take you know uh, for example you can turn waste coffee into mushrooms for example, you know, we call that circular infrastructure. The biosphere always upcycles. Uh, it never recycles. It upcycles everything. It always adds more value. We recycle stuff, which means basically going down the supply chain. You ever, you never to be going to you end up with waste materials in, in a down cycle. But with mushrooms, what you can do is you can take waste materials and take them waste materials and turn, turn them into mushrooms. So that was one of the, the big things about, you know, how how we create a product range where we, we can be a plant-based product range, but also, you know, look at the circle infrastructure and regenerative part of the business going forward. And I think really that positioning is why, why we ended up getting to the COP. You know, yes, we've got a really good, tasty product range. That, that comes first. 
you know, that's what you have to hit the nail on. The second thing is it has to be tasty and it has to also come in at the right economic price for the people you're selling to. There's no point creating an amazing product and then it's twice as dear as everybody else because, you know, you're probably it's probably going to be difficult to get it, to get in for obvious reasons. Even though our product is a little bit dearer than others on the market. But I think also, you know, the, the pitch of, you know, you're, you're supporting a food company which is going to be innovating and circular and regenerative. And I think it was these conversations that ended up getting us where we were with COP. You've spoken a bit about the plant-based lifestyle as being much more than just plant-based products. What do you think needs to change in the food industry? And how do you see these big changes happening in the food supply really across the UK? Yeah, well, I think we're in our infancies. I think it goes right. But I think the, the, the food companies that are going to innovate, the ones that are going to be around in the next 5, 10, 15 years are the ones who go right back to the beginning of the supply chain and start di- differentiating themselves from the market. Because when you're doing that, for example, you know, we've just taken over a 37 hectare farm and we're doing that as a collaboration. We're hoping to scale that farming infrastructure up. So we start with 37 hectares. We want to scale up to, you know, two, three, four, five hundred hectares, not just with herbalism, but a group of people that we're working with. And we want to do that because we feel by investing in the farm end of our um, supply chain, we can innovate all the way through. For example, if you're growing organic regenerative foods, uh, that means, you know, processes like fermentation, dehydration, cold pressing, we can use all these to innovate. And also at the end of the supply chain, when it comes to waste, you know, we can we can look at different ways of using that waste because again, if we if you've got good food right at the beginning of the supply chain, when it comes to the waste material after you're processing, there's innovation to do there as well. So, you know, what we're trying to do is a vertically integrated approach and have a piece of the, the right at the beginning of the supply chain, right right to our, our customers. Yes, it's more expensive, it's more complex. But I think if you if you do it right, I think there's lots more innovation to be had. And I think these are the things you'll start seeing with really good food companies now and into the future. In sort of the media and across sort of, you know, popular culture, there's more and more pushback against plant-based uh, agriculture. Um, you often hear people saying vegans are killing the Amazon because of our avocados or our insatiable desire for tofu, as if uh, most of the Amazon is being cut down for tofu, which is obviously completely not true at all. But there is this sort of movement known as regenerative agriculture, which often places animals at the center of that conversation, saying that we must continue to use animals and that animals, and particularly cows, uh, form a central role at that form of agriculture. Obviously, the idea behind this is we do understand why a lot of people are doing this. They, they have an idea that it's a more environmentally friendly approach of farming. But I also personally believe it's one of, a, of extreme privilege because, you know, most people cannot afford to eat grass-fed beef. And we also don't have in, you know, enough land mass to be able to farm animals in this way. Have you experienced this sort of pushback against plant-based agriculture with the regenerative agricultural movement? Yeah, so it's a really good question, Robbie. You know, first, okay, what is regenerative agriculture? Well, firstly, you can't do regenerative agriculture. It's an ideology. But under that ideology, there is well-defined design principles which you can use to develop regenerative landscapes, regenerative farms. And the the most well-known is agroforestry, forest gardening, uh, bio-farming, and and the other, you know... and other techniques. And also, you know, thinking about how the biosphere evolved. Mushrooms first, 
you know, and then more complex systems like soils and grasses, trees, plants, you know, and while that was happening, insects kind of evolved and then from insects, more complex animals, etc. My point is that to develop complex ecosystems, you know, I think animals are a key part of that. Does that mean that we we, we cannot reduce, that we, we, we can't reduce the, the kind of meat that we're eating? Or maybe I had a great term couple of months ago where someone said it's not it's not the cow it's the how for for example you know i think what we need to do is understand that animals are always always like insects and uh, grasses and trees etc that the biosphere has developed ecosystems which all these things work together so when i designed food systems i always try to think about where you know um where animals fit within that system if the system system allows it that doesn't mean i think we should eat be eating more meat what i'm saying is you know animals have a place within the biosphere just like we do mm, absolutely i mean there, there's a documentary kiss the ground that was on netflix have you seen it no i have i haven't seen it i've heard of it There's so much bad news about our planet, it's overwhelming. Truth is, I've given up. This is the story of a simple solution, a way to heal our planet. The solution is right under our feet, and it's as old as dirt. All of our soils that are under chemical conventional agriculture are almost completely devoid of microorganisms. Modern agriculture was not designed for the betterment of the soil. Fossil fuels are by no means the only thing that is causing climate change. When we damage soils, carbon goes back to the atmosphere. But when we destroy soil, it releases carbon dioxide. So kiss the ground, obviously, a lot of people in the plant-based space feel that it's just a last-ditch attempt to try and keep meat relevant. But, you know, there's this idea that we'll have these idyllic lands where cows are grazing in fields and people can continue to eat the beef that they love. But actually what people don't seem to realize is that the effects of those animals by merely them being there and consuming large amounts of heart matter, the carbon sequestering that goes on isn't always as effective as they would like it to be. You know, I think there's this idea that all we have to do is put cows back into the natural habitat and we'll magically be able to live in harmony with nature. But the idea behind that is, you know, what if everyone was eating like that? What if everyone was eating cows from these beautiful fields? We'd need three or four earths, wouldn't we? Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, that won't work. Like the simple fact is, we need to reduce our reduce our meat, um, and we need a, a much uh, broader balance of, of foods. Look, we need a more diverse way of creating food and, and products. It, it might be something like you know, not eighty percent, you know, eighty percent of tradition traditional globalized agriculture you know what we do definitely don't what we're doing is you know the, the big farms like in texas you know where they produce huge amount amounts of meat you know do you want to be eating that that kind of meat if you're meat De- definitely not you know it's it's terrible uh, in in so many ways but i think what we do need is a much more diverse diet global agriculture has got a lot to do with that you know in the in the uk you know we've got 2500 different apples you've got 15 um so i said 1500 different mushrooms before it's 15,000 I think edible edible mushrooms globally because of global agriculture and supermarkets the reason our food is so reductionary is because it's in their hands you know and I think what's especially what's happening in the UK now 
you know, is there is a resurgence of people wanting to take land back because of Brexit, climate change, biodiversity loss, desertification, etc, etc. As we take lands back over, we definitely have to develop ecosystems, ecosystems that put carbon in the soil, that raise the biodiversity of the site, raise the biodiversity of insects, birds and livestock for particular systems. You know, we cannot just, you know, like sheep and cows no longer have a, a, a role to play in the biosphere. You know, I don't, I don't think as human beings, as a newcomers to this planet, because that's what we are. We've only been here 250 million years. If that, that's when, you know, savannas, you know, started to, t you know, uh, complex forest systems started to turn in savannas. You know, it's when, you know, early homids uh, came came into to this earth. You know, we are really new to this system. And I think everything that's come before us deserves to be, be part of the system. It's such a good point. I love what you just said there. We are newcomers. We are new, a newish species as far as earth and, and nature goes, the way we've appeared. And what often happens when a new species comes into an eco, eco into an environment or a biospace is often it proliferates, doesn't it? A bit like a parasite. You know, I, I know it may seem a little bit negative, uh, but I've discussed this a few times on, on this podcast, but Homo sapiens sapiens, which is our species, we're a species of great ape. Do you feel sometimes that we should be reclassified as an invasive parasitic species, that our species, even though we are imbued with often, we can be incredibly intelligent, incredibly creative, but by our mere existence on this beautiful garden of a planet, we seem to have, you know, the way we live seems so destructive. Is there any chance that we could turn that around? Because obviously in, in 100 years... 90 plus years, we've almost completely eviscerated the biosphere of wildlife, cut down most of the forests, poisoned most of the rivers. We're having oil spills left, right and center. Knowing what you know about the possibilities, do you feel like we could ever create some kind of harmonious system with nature? Well, just go first going back to your first point, you know, evidently, Robbie, that, that is the case. Mm. You know, we've been here virtually in, you know, geological times. We've been, we've been here like in a blink of an eye. Five minutes. You know, you know, is that, and we we have, like you say, not just since we've been here, but in the last 120 years, we virtually brought the the biosphere to its knees. Mm -hmm. You know that that is the fact. So it's interesting. That I think you know we we have got a very we've got a choice to make. I had a dream. I'm not going to do you Martin Luther King, <laughs> but I had a dream last night. On one side of a farm, yeah, there was all the 20 million, 30 million other species. And on, our, on my side, there was me and the 108 billion minds yeah, that, that were being. So there's been 108 billion minds created since the birth of, of humanity. And in my dream, there was this, the, this massive gorilla who pulled his arm over to, to us across this field and pulled us back over. I think that's what's happening now. Or I think that's the choice that we've got. We need to look back to the future and turn back to nature and try to mimic exactly what they do. We need to become yeah, natural metabolic beings once again. Hunter-gatherers were virtually that. The only difference is they didn't have a huge population. You know, we've got now a huge population. We live in cities and so on. I think nature has given us all the tools, as I mentioned before, to, to create cities which are highly metabolic, that creates uh, food systems which are highly ecological, regenerative and, and circular. I think we have all the means to do to do that. And the only way we're able to do that is actually kind of to look back and question ourselves, what are we actually doing here with that extra content? 
consciousness that we have, like you said, it looks like all it's done, that extra consciousness, has destroyed the biosphere. It's interesting that, you know, all the other species don't have consciousness. They don't even know what they're doing. They're in a system that just perpetuates mm. goodness. Some might say we are the unconscious ones. Ironically, they're the conscious ones because really, when you think about it, wild animals, or unless they're a parasite or something that causes destruction, most organisms in this world live in harmony with nature. They never take more than they need. They don't exist in a greedy state like we do, though you know, so it can be said that there are some types of apes that behave a lot like human beings, you know, that in fact, the more complex the brain, it would seem the more aggressive, a greedy creature you become. Just on that point, though, I don't know if you're a spiritual person or you're someone who has sort of being more scientific, you may not. How do we deal with greed? Because obviously, it's one of the central, most central kind of problems uh, of our species today. For me, I believe as a Buddhist, it is one of the roots of all evil, damage done to our world, this desire that we must have more and more and more this sort of very destructive capitalist culture that we found ourselves in that's always trying to create the self-fulfilling prophecy of buy more be more grow more take more have more it's all more 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 right which is obviously a deck of cards because there's no such thing as infinite growth Greta Thunberg talks about it all the time it's so selfish and ridiculous that our politicians and our leaders talk about infinite growth when it comes to our economies it's a mirage it's a facade but yet we we carry on. We all carry on as if we believe that there's infinite amounts of resources on this planet when there aren't. I mean, how do you feel about how we're going to deal with the greed that's so intrinsic within our species? You know, do we need some kind of like revolution? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, you know, and I, I find this in myself sometimes and you have to question it. I think it does start with self more than anything and question, you know, what what is your life about and why are you here and what do you want to achieve? And more to the point, what do you want to leave in that legacy? Just a, a Land Rover and destruction or, you know, to kind of, you know, invest in farms, you know, and develop better earth systems. You know, this is one reason why I want to get the farm and move out on an urban environment. I spent, you know, 10 years nearly in forest systems and it's something that I've really been really keen to do and I'm so excited to get the farm because you know some of my mates at my age might be buying Land Rovers and bigger houses and so on and actually what I want to do is actually downsize and get a, a larger farm you know and, and, and kind of live on the farm so I think it's a very much a personal choice. When it comes to growth I think this is an interesting one because growth and innovation, one thing that we, we should be doing with all our materials, manufacture, everything that we produce, we need to make it a lot more metabolic where we are we are not polluting the planet. You know, large organisations, Coca-Cola, for example, you know, or you know all their plastic bottles i still don't understand why you know right why they're not investing millions to completely rethink their manufacturing so they create bottles that virtually disappear in water you know or you add it to soil and it will slowly disappear the way we make products and you know toys and your plastics and all that kind of stuff that completely ha has to completely change and i think we are in our infancy again mushrooms is going to be a huge part of that photosynthesis technology and and, and so on I think we are in our early stages of creating a 
lot more metabolic society where all our, you know, all the products that we create can go directly back into the biosphere, exactly what nature's been doing for billions of years. It's such an interesting subject. And of course, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about the possibilities because, as you say, there's everything's there. We've got all the makings of what we need. There's a fantastic film I recommend called 2040. It's about a young man, a filmmaker who said, what would happen if we imagined a world in 2040 if all the good things that we're doing now we kept doing and all the bad stuff that all the damage we're doing we removed and what would that world look like for my little daughter and it was kind of a love letter really to his little daughter my name is damon and this is my daughter velvet her major concern right now is the elusive art of sleep direction but soon, she'll have to face a rapidly deteriorating environment. The ice sheet is now melting faster than the scientists predicted. I think there's room for a different story, a story that focuses on the solutions to some of these problems. So in 2040, what will the world look like for our daughter if we just embrace the best that already exists? Instead of having governments that are reacting to disaster, we need governments and businesses that actually take us off in a different direction. Maybe it's farming, or it can be energy, or it can be housing, or it can be empowering girls. I'd like to see deforestation being stopped. Oh, that would be so cool. That'd be awesome. Just be respectful to Earth. Imagine Velvet. We adopted regenerative practices, like phrases. Pulling the carbon into the soil and making it healthier. That's right, yeah. And we embrace efficient local energy. Bangladesh has five million solar home systems. They have their power in their own hands. This is bringing people together. But here I am sitting on an aeroplane that is spewing out carbon. You can't help but be a hypocrite because our entire system is built on fossil fuels. What were you guys thinking? Well, sometimes we weren't. A story of possibility. And for me, that is what I love about doing this work, but also meeting people like you, is that we've got to keep dreaming big. We've got to keep imagining like what's possible. And that can only really begin with us. If we're all spending all this time thinking about all the terrible things in this world and all the darkness and the, and the sort of greediness, it can be very easy to become very depressed and misanthropic and kind of feel like there's no hope, right? Otherwise, we're not going to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> But, you know, as long I, I genuinely believe as long as there are good people out there, and of course there are many fighting for change and trying to transform our species and trying to sort of what I might say as a Buddhist shift our karma, because obviously traditionally and looking at our past or our track record, we've been a pretty destructive race of creatures. But I do believe that we have potential. You know, we've got this incredible new food technologies coming in. We've got ways to regenerate and rewild. There's just so much possibility. So it does genuinely fill me with hope when I meet people like you who's so passionate and obviously made your whole life about how we can actually take us one step closer to living in harmony with nature but you know obviously the plant-based movement is made up of people as you say and you mentioned talking about we're going to make these changes it has to be come from us it sometimes feels very frustrating from my part that it does feel quite slow obviously things have changed a lot in the last five years but there's still less than one percent or two percent of the uk population or the global population are plant-based or even thinking about switching to plant-based still most 99% of people are still consuming animal products are still mindlessly kind of shopping and buying Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem and how much we've actually got to change no I, I, honestly I don't I think you know you, you everything you just said there you, you're correct you know there's huge challenges and I think when sometimes you when you, you're in your silo and you're working with people who do really good things you, you think everybody's doing it it's simply not not the fact but I think humanity as a whole 
whole, as a pure optimist, I, I, I do think oh, over the next 20 years that we will see radical change. One thing that hardly gets mentioned around the, this agenda around climate change is also the speed of technology, you know, the exponential growth of technology. And I'm not just speaking about the shiny things that we see, computers and phones and so on. I'm saying our own consciousness. I think we're starting to become more biologically and ecologically aware. I think we're starting to, to understand that slowly but surely, and, and maybe not our generation, but I definitely see it also in my nieces. I've got three nieces. Two of them are vegan. You know, they just see the world completely different to us. And I think, you know, uh, we, we have to do our best in our generation. But I think the, the new generations coming up the new biological engineers, the new system thinkers. I, I think these, with emerging technology, will change things very rapidly over the next 20 to 30 years, exactly how we want to do. I think it's by the time we get to 2047, non-biological te technology will be about a trillion times more capable than all biological technology. Now, that sounds scary. It does sound scary. And, and that quote, just so you know, that quote comes from Ray Kurzweil, who was the head of Google uh, for strategy for number of years and also wrote the book Nearing Singularity, which is a fantastic book on mapping the exponential growth of technology. You know, innovation is going to, is, is critical and creating proper platforms for innovation, but the exponential growth in technology, I, I find is something that does not get mentioned enough. You know, we're all kind of thinking about, you know, the terrible things that climate change are going to bring, etc. And and yes, that, is, that they are real, as we all know. But the, like I said, the flip side to that is we have got, you know, I think we are evolving as a species to, to understand our place within the biosphere. And I especially think the younger younger generations coming through, I see it in my nieces, but also the exponential growth in technology. You know, by 2047, non-biological technology will be about a trillion times more capable than all biological technology. That in the next 20 years, to actually live through that, the first time that non-biological technology will be more capable than the uh, 809 billion minds that have been created. If you, create, if you bring all the minds together, the technology that is going to merge over the next 20 years will be, you know, trillion times more capable than that. And that means that we're going to, you know, industries are going to completely change. Yes, part of that is frightening, you know, especially around security, etc. But actually, when you start thinking about the materials that we're making, you know, and the way we can completely rethink uh, and make things more metabolic, we know we're absolutely blessed to live in the, these times of huge challenges, but also huge opportunities to, to basically rethink everything. It's a very exciting time. Speaking of the future, so what can we expect to see from you and herbalism in the future? What are some of the exciting things that are on the horizon? Well, farming infrastructure, I think, you know, taking over our farm, starting to develop really complex ecosystems, especially in, in the UK, really pushing perennial foods. The UK is a perennial island. You know, the reason we get all our annuals from, from outside of the UK or a lot of them from outside of the UK because they're sun-loving crops and the UK is not a sun-loving island. You know, we're, we are a more of a forest island and therefore our food should be more on perennials. Perennials are interesting because firstly, unlike annuals, when you're cutting them, you're not disturbing the soil. Perennials are foods that can stay in the soil for up to 15 years. For example, good King Henry's is our native spinach in the UK. We don't eat anymore 
anymore because we get all our spinach from the south of Spain. So we're, we're starting to develop ecosystems based on UK climate and infrastructure. And that's something that I'm really excited about. We're not just doing it in Yorkshire. We will be spreading across Scotland, Wales, into the south of, of the UK. Why? Because we want to develop a, a diverse range of different products as we scale up our, uh, our manufacturing processes. And on the other end of that is our circular infrastructure. So we're looking at working with food companies who are producing huge amounts of waste. Why do we want to do that? Because we want to take that waste and start using that waste to create new products. For example, waste coffee into into mushrooms, waste bread into beer, for for example. There's a whole range of biological manufacturing techniques that are coming through now to create more sustainable products, more healthy products from actual waste streams. So this is what we're focused on, that moving away from just a plant-based product company into a much more technical, regenerative, circular infrastructure company. Is there anything that exists where companies can go onto a platform and sort of publish that they have a certain amount of food waste and other companies, like a bit like a marketplace, where they can plug in with that person and sort of, as you say, close the loop. So if there's a coffee company, they produce a lot of coffee grounds, they're obviously either dumping it or, you know, getting rid of it in some way. Can they connect with a company in another part of the country who can use that to grow mushrooms such as yourself? Is there anything that exists like that? I think you've just come up with a great business idea there, Ravi. So we so we get it going. So I we think we need to. I just did so much waste in the food system. 30% of what we farm ends up being dumped because it doesn't look good enough. It's the wrong shape. When that food goes to the supermarket, some 30% of it ends up being binned because it doesn't get bought. And then the food that we bring home into our own houses about 30% of that ends up in the trash or the bin or the dustbin, wherever you live. So how much food actually ends up in our mouth compared to the actual food that we grow is criminal. Yeah, absolutely right. And I, I you know, I think, you know, we, we're already seeing the emergence of more. I think the, the I think the states now have, have a an upcycle, food upcycle association. I'm sure that's going to happen into the UK in the very near future if it's not already happening. And I think, you know, part of our platform with our farm is to do that. You know, we're, we're working with, you know, some very large food organisations who have large waste streams, but all have also have large supply chains and you know as we develop our farming infrastructure this is something that we, we we really want to look at because the food companies that we're working with want, want to do that themselves you know they realize that actually you're right you know coffee it's it, if you put coffee into landfill it excretes 20 times more methane than it does carbon dioxide holy it's shit a, yeah it's a it's a horrible it's just, there's no need to put waste coffee into landfill but that's virtually where it ends up can you and say that again how much so you when you put coffee like large quantities of coffee grounds into the soil yeah so if yeah so if you if you're if you're putting large amounts of coffee into landfill landfill where you're stacking you know that traditional large-scale landfill because it gets lit left there ex, you know it basically excretes loads of methane it's a really bad one to put in but from a biological manufacturing p- perspective it takes fungi for for example, uh, for example, oyster mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms can can basically do a one to one. So if you have a ton of coffee, virtually you can create a ton of mushrooms out of it if the process is done properly. It's a non brainer really to start developing that infrastructure, in particular in the UK. Why in the UK? Because oyster mushrooms are the fastest decomposer of wood matter in forest systems. So listen to this. So if you t- if you got a food company with wa- waste coffee, you can take that waste coffee. 
you feed that waste coffee to mushrooms. What you get out of it is you get the waste coffee turns into mushroom. You take the mushroom back into supply chain, but then you end up with what we call mushroom spelt. And that mushroom spelt is basically mushroom. It's a material uh, which has got thousands of uh, oyster spores in it. Well, you just put that into your forest systems. Forest systems completely need that in the UK. Again, so by developing a circular infrastructure just with mushrooms, you end up getting really healthy organic mushrooms out of a waste stream that would go to landfill but also you get a, a bioremediation product that support forest systems it's a no-brainer in a forest system what happens is when a tree is dying firstly it drops its temperature and that's the first indication for uh, mushrooms to jump onto the tree and start eating it the second one is when it falls that's the big one and when it falls that's the big indicator now we can mimic that so you can you can do this a few few different ways so you could get a tree stump that's in a forest and you can inoculate it with mushrooms and then you put it into water for 24 hours and the water and the mushrooms think that the tree is dying because the temperature has reduced then you take it out the water and then you throw it on the floor and the mushrooms then think that the tree has fallen 24 hours later you get mushrooms out of it I love how you say the mushrooms think that's so interesting (laughs) use of words because obviously mushrooms don't have a brain so how do they think but I don't know how what your knowledge is on mushrooms but I, I find them and how far it goes but I find mushrooms fascinating with regards to mycelium network and how mushrooms are all interconnected in a, in a way that very much mimics a brain, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no mushroom, no trees, no humans. We are highly, we are much more deeply connected to mushrooms than we are to plants by far because without without mushroom and interestingly when mushrooms first come into the biosphere, mushrooms and fungi were the same size as trees. Imagine that before, you know, plants, shrubs, grasses, etc. Mushrooms were, were massive. And like you say, it's that fungi network that enables complex forest systems to do what they, they do. Without complex fo- soil systems, i.e. complex hyphy networks, yeah, you cannot have complex forest systems. And incidentally, in, in, you know, in the 1940s with the Macy conferences, when they were trying to think about system design, where were these system designers looking when they were thinking about how to create a peer-to-peer system. In 1940s, the Macy Conference, we were trying to work out how to create a peer-to-peer system, i.e. the World Wide Web. Where did they look? They looked at mushrooms because they realised that it's the best peer-to-peer system that, that we know in nature, hyphy. Mm, it's incredible. And that's, again, more biomimicry, right? Humans taking ideas from nature and creating systems for you know to do our bidding. I just want to turn the conversation a bit before we wrap up onto pesticides. Pesticides, herbicides and fungus sides seem to be prolific throughout our food system and they have done for generations. People talk about glyphosate and these chemicals, how they're on our food, in our food, in the soil, killing the bugs, killing the worms, killing the birds, killing everything, killing us. How bad are they and should we all be buying organic food even though it seems to be a lot more expensive? Yeah, so uh, it's a really good point. So on the 27th of September 1962, we knew this because of Colin, the, the book Silent Spring by uh, Rachel Carson. So we, we, we knew this uh, in 1962, how bad pesticides were uh, and, and monocultures as a whole. We actually knew how bad monocultures were in 1845 because of the Irish famine. 
you know, the potato famine in Ireland. You know, why did that happen? It happened because we were virtually just growing one crop. So we knew for a long time that one crop infrastructure, even though we weren't using pesticides in that time, is a bad idea. Interestingly, there was research done around pesticides. And if I remember correctly, food that needs to protect itself has an enzyme called CY1B1. I think that's it, that's correct. CY1B1. And uh, they found this in actually grapes, if I remember, and uh, initially in grapes. And what they found is that uh, this CY1B1 is a way of, it's an enzyme that protects the food. And interestingly, this enzyme also protects cancer in the human body. So by us eating organic food, they see the CY1B1 enzyme comes into the human body and it protects us. But what they also found is when you use pesticides on that food, that enzyme stops producing. The enzyme stops producing because the food doesn't need to protect itself anymore because it's using heavy pesticides to protect it. Well, what is the consequence of that? The consequence of that is when we're eating the food, it's also not protecting us from cancers. When you look at the graphs between heavy pesticide use in food and human cancers, you put the graphs together and they're virtually the same. What about correlation doesn't equal causation? Yeah. Not trying to catch you out there, just generally interested because yeah. I've always thought this as well, you know, an increase in pesticides and increase in human cancers, they have to be linked. We are eating these foods. When you eat a carrot that's covered in pesticides, when you eat uh, an apple where you haven't washed the skin, I, none of my friends wash any of their fruits and vegetables. They just eat them straight from the bag. Obviously, you know, the manufacturers say, oh, the pesticides are all in safe levels. But what about bioaccumulation? Yeah, exactly. And we, we see bioaccumulation in fish. We see it, we've seen it in seas. Without, you know, it's again, it goes back to the real origins of regenerative agriculture. If we're doing agriculture that is not mimicking natural systems, for me, it's bad news. Pesticides was part of an innovation. It enables to grow food quicker in larger quantities for a growing population. 100 years on, we now realize that that was a bad idea. You know, so it wasn't like the godfathers of pesticides. I, I don't think, you know, they, they created these technologies to, to ruin the world. I think there was a commercial reason to create them, but also a, a population need to also create these pesticides. Like I say, 100 years on now, we realize it's a bad idea. It's wrecking the biosphere uh, and we, we need to completely rethink. Doing that is a huge challenge. You know, I work, I freelance for food companies, quite large food companies uh, who are trying to now look at regenerative agriculture and they're realising the challenge of changing a, a globalised agriculture, which is something more localised and organic. That is not going to happen overnight, Robbie. We're going to see over the next 10, 15, 30 years, I think we will see a, a, a massive shift. If we can get to something like 95% regenerative and 5% pesticide heavy, that would be ideal. I think probably we're now kind of 75, you know, 25, maybe 85, 15. You know, I think that that, that shift it will have to happen simply because not because we want to happen the biosphere can't can't continue with the uh, this what one use of one one crop uh, and more to the point the heavy pesticides which is you know, going into uh, water courses, going into reservoirs, etc. You, you mentioned their time frame, sort of 10, 20, because this is a long time off, it sounds. We are up against the clock. As you know, the climate crisis is a very real thing. You know, the biosphere is on its, on its knees, as you said earlier. Do we have time? 
You know, we uh, food waste makes up a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions every year. Is there enough time? You know, do you feel a sort of sense of urgency in the, in your work? Oh no, I feel I, I I certainly feel a sense of urgency, and I think what we need is a broad range of technologies in all different sectors to decarbonize. It's as simple as that. Just the other day, I was looking at a technology called Liquid Three, which is basically photosynthesis uh, using algae in in cities. These kind of liquid pods can pull. In, uh, as much carbon dioxide as I think it said something like you no know, 200 year old trees or something like that and at the same time we you know we have to kind of look at all that circular infrastructure so we can completely reduce food we have to look at the beginning of the supply chain to, to innovate to make sure we're developing regenerative foods to re- reduce the transportation etc so you know it's, uh, it's not going to all happen at once but I think you know well what 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 can we do put our heads in the sand and think you know shit you know what are we going to do I don't think we got a choice you know I think we you know the people who are interested the people who want to do it the people who rule the world are the people who want to show up Robbie you need to kind of wake up every day and feel like you are the ruler and uh, get out there and do good stuff uh, amen to that however the, you know I don't mean to be like a, a, a prophet of doom here but COP26 in my opinion felt like a bit of a disaster because you've got all these leaders who are all looking to for the solutions and we're expecting to have animal agriculture at the center or at least part of the conversation at COP26 and it was barely mentioned it was barely mentioned in any of the plenaries all the discussions there were a couple of small side rooms where people talked about it and often the room was empty there's two or three people sitting in the rooms we as individuals obviously can take big action it's very clear we can change our diets we can stop consuming so much but how do we as people reconcile the notion that our leaders seem to be completely either in the back pockets of animal agriculture or big industry or they just do not care do we need politician to develop better farming systems you know we can just get out there and do it you know i think you know farmers you know i don't think i've ever met a farmer in the 20 years i've been working in, in this industry who, who who said like oh no i don't want to do things better what they struggle with is understanding how they do things better you know how to raise the capital you know but what they have is a huge amount of you know uh, love and ambition for a very difficult sector so i think you know we, we firstly in the farming industry in food and agriculture you know, I think what we need to do is, you know, come together, the people who are interested in it, work more collaborative together, bring farmers together, shorten the supply chains between food companies and farmers. I think if you said to any large food company that we can give you more sustainable ecological food and we can do it from a farm around the corner, I think most of them would go for it. You know, not all of them, but I think most of them. This goes back to how, how I've always worked. It's about getting out there and trying to make things happen, not sitting in universities uh, or in ivory towers, writing more documents about what we need to do you know why i'm not an academic anymore you know i'm i was sick yeah exactly i was sick of death you know Mm. sick to the teeth of writing documents from documents on documents saying what we should be doing you know i'd rather just go out there and make some mistakes myself take over farms and you know try and make it happen and i think we just we just need more of that i think if there's more academics spending less time in university and out actually practicing what they preach would be better in a much better space. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Before I let, let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it's just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're plant-based, but if I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you, Dr. V? Actually, I, I, I do love making a plant-based uh, lasagna. Plant-based lasagna would be good for me. My favourite book Probably Out of Control by Kevin Kelly. 
the, the guy from uh, San Francisco, California guy, a technologist, but also speaks about emerging technologies and all, all that fantastic stuff. And what else was, what was the last one? Your music artist or album? Probably Cultural Warriors from Sweden, dub, like a bit of dub. Sounds amazing. Dr. Vincent Welsh, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been fascinating and I'm looking forward to episode two already. Uh, now, thank you for your time, Bob. Anytime. I uh, look forward to touch base soon, my friend. Take care. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, environment, agriculture, and everything in between.